0: Today we revisit my 2003 conversation with magician pianist Todd Robbins. Todd's show, Play Dead, opens this November at the Geffen Playhouse in Los Angeles. Play Dead utilizes Todd's talents in music, theater, and magic, as well as his delight in scaring his audiences with heart-stopping surprises. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. One of Todd Robbins' early gigs was working with Woody Allen.
1: It's something that came about a number of years ago, thanks to uh, Eddie Davis, the wonderful banjo player and singer and composer. Simply put, Woody loved playing Monday nights at Michael's Pub, and yet the band was not well-versed in the exact kind of music that Woody liked best, which was the old Bunk Johnson band uh, that many jazz aficionados will will understand, know what I'm talking about. Uh, Basically, that band, uh, though Bunk died in the late 40s, went on and became the members of the band, became the first band at Preservation Hall. So when you think of that wonderful old, kind of creaky but very soulful (laughs) uh, New Orleans jazz, that's the kind of music that Woody likes because it has so much character to it. So Eddie said, you know, there are musicians in the city who can play that stuff. And why don't we put together a rehearsal group? So that's what happened. And uh, tape was rolled at all the rehearsals as uh, we got together every Sunday evening and for several hours and just played tunes. And out of that, hours and hours and hours and hours of of tape, a recording came out called The Bunk Project, which was these guys trying to capture the sound. And it was very successful, and then that led to Other things such as uh, Wild Man Blues, which was the documentary of a tour that Woody did, the first tour he ever did uh, with the band. Uh, And I didn't do that tour. Uh, Cynthia Sayre was on piano. But when it came to record the soundtrack album, the sound off of the the soundtrack itself, Woody wasn't that happy with. So he decided to just go in and cut another album using a lot of the tunes that that they had played uh, on the tour. And Cynthia wasn't around, so I went in and did that also. No, no, no. fun thing it has it's very much like uh, as I say about jazz and what I do with my own performance the the similarity is that it's presenting the expected and unexpected way
0: Mm, that's nice when
1: you hear the band playing traditional tunes like Margie or I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles or whatever it is um, you know the tune but you've never heard it played this way before Mm -hmm. And the great thing about it, especially with jazz, and also live performance, which is really what I do, uh, it'll never be done exactly that way again. Mm, mm. So that's just the the fun thing about it. And the fact that this music, as opposed to later forms of jazz, the the post-swing forms of jazz, there's a great element of joy in it. And it was really meant as celebration music, as party music. And that specific sound was played up until the old guys kicked mm-hmm. in these steamy hot uncomfortable dance halls down in New Orleans and Algiers and all the area around New Orleans and if you think about that this music could get people up in the middle of a New Orleans summer <laughs> off of their seats and dancing until they're ready to drop then there's that, that really says something about the music
0: that fascinates me with your performances Mm -hmm. is i've seen you in a number of settings yeah well with an act
1: like mine i gotta keep moving (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry well i'm
0: thinking that the the combination in one show that i saw where you would play Mm -hmm. jazz Mm -hmm. and then do some magic yeah and then play jazz do some magic that's interesting to me because i know how spontaneous you are with your humor and things Mm -hmm. like that but magic is a very specific thing as i understand it that you can't improvise with certain kind of magic
1: no you can't and yet just as jazz has a lot to do about being true to yourself and also being aware of what's going on around you you have to work on that duality especially if you're not just playing solo piano but if you're playing with other musicians You have to do what you have to do, but at the same time, you don't want to step on anyone's toes. You have to be aware of what's going on. With doing magic or the sideshow, whatever, uh, your partner in this is the audience. And so you have to be very aware of not only what you do and what you've prepared to do, but how they're receiving it and what the impact is. And you have to adjust your, your take on things. You can't just go out and do the same show each and every time. If you do, it becomes... Just very, very stale, very mm-hmm, quickly. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's also not, it drives me nuts uh, when I end up doing something over and over and over again if I can't play with it a little bit. And uh, when I have an audience that is that's very responsive and is, is getting the jokes and are appreciating and responding the way I, I'm hoping they will, mm. it just la- allows me to kind of soar over it, sort of like, well, as you know, one of the things I really like is uh, the San Francisco uh, revival bands, mm. Turk Murphy and, and the stuff that John Gill has done with his great bands, and... There's something about that. There's just this wonderful chugging quality of the rhythm section. This, and it doesn't swing at all. I mean, it's not about swing. It's about this, this infectious uh, juggernaut of rhythm going along, and then allows the musicians, the, the the horn players, to rise above it mm-hmm. and sail above it because mm-hmm. you've got this this strong strong current of rhythm underneath you that you don't have to play rhythmically. You can go bef- ahead and behind the beat and do whatever you want, whatever you need to do because you've got this support. It's the same thing when you're doing something for uh, an audience that is getting what you're doing. You don't have to drag them along. Mm. And it's, it's just a wonderful, wonderful feeling.
0: Gill's Dixie Man Serenaders on the Joe Oliver Louis Armstrong tune Weatherbird Rag. I'm Judy Carmichael and this is Jazz Inspired. My guest is magician and pianist Todd Robbins. I asked Todd when he first discovered jazz.
1: As I first got involved with magic and uh, then a few years later I saw a sideshow and I really, the reason I got into magic is because I want to experience something extraordinary and quickly discovered that it was all deception. Now, the great thing about it, though, it's really cool deception. I mean, it's it's fun deception. Again, it has that element of joy to it. Mm. Uh, and then I saw a sideshow, and I saw people swallowing swords and eating fire. And this hit me as extraordinary ability beyond the capabilities of the average person. And that's a pretty good definition for real magic right there. Mm. So I got involved with that first, and then was working on... Uh, a, 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 an act, some performance, that I wanted something that kind of was joyous because it was a comic act and something that evoked an earlier period, too. Mm. So I just was kind of stumbling around and someone recommended some some ragtime records. And this was this was uh, BS. It was before The Sting. <laughs> and uh, so there was very little out there. And I came across a couple of records and really liked the music. It fit what I needed, but it also really hit something in me, and I immediately became obsessed with with that. How old were you then? Uh, you know, like 12 years old. And ended up trying to find out everything I could about that, and of course that led into jazz, because there's so many similarities, even though people have a tendency to kind of divorce the two. Um, the, the, the great thing about uh, ragtime that is really not understood. It's, it's kind of been forgotten is that this was a very personal form of musical expression. Most people nowadays, when you think ragtime, you think the written compositions, but it was a performed art form. Uh, yes, there were great composers like Scott Joplin, but if you talked or you listen, I should say, uh, unfortunately I had a chance to talk to a couple of the old timers, uh, cause I was young enough to kind of get in on the, and, and meet people like Yubi Blake mm-hmm. and, uh, Sheldon Brooks and a few others that when you talk to them they all said in the interviews and uh, that each player had their own distinctive sound mm-hmm. now you get that later on because we've had really good recordings I and mean, you can listen to the difference between Fats Waller and James P. Johnson and, and the others playing the exact same composition in Stride, well Ragtime was the same way and I really took to it because I, I could hear this mm-hmm. and that's the thing that I like. I, I The compositions, the rags are wonderful. They're great. But I really like it when someone takes a tune and plays it in their own style. And one of my favorite forms of this was the old piano rolls. Mm. And there was a uh, composer and wonderful musician named Pete Wendling, who wrote uh, a number of t- tunes that were big hits in their day, but have completely been forgotten like, you know, take your girly to the movies if you can't make love at home. Uh, <laughs> you know, great social comment But uh, he was a great player, and when he would take a tune, like For Me and My Gal, which everyone knows, again, it's that playing it in the expected and an unexpected way. And he would change the rhythmic feel of it around. He would add in his own filigree, his own make his own arrangement. And the great thing about it is that this was something he didn't just sit down and work out but he was a spontaneous player. When he was done with it, when he'd sit down and play it again, it would be completely different. Mm.
0: piano roll version of For Me and My Gal. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I asked my guest, sideshow specialist and magician Todd Robbins, about his off-Broadway show Carnival Knowledge.
1: It's an unconventional show in many ways. The things you're going to see on the stage of the Soho Playhouse here in New York, when you see Carnival Knowledge, uh, you're not going to see anywhere else. It's like no other off-Broadway show. And the name kind of says it all in many levels because I I love kind of old, hokey humor. uh, And the name Carnival Knowledge, obviously, is a play on words right right there. But it also tells you what the the show is all about. It is a behind-the-scenes glimpse at the wonderful world of the Great American Sideshow. And I not only do a lot of the classic acts of the Sideshow... Such as sword swallowing and fire eating, and some of the more bizarre ones, such as eating glass and hammering a nail into my nose.
0: My personal oh, favorite. There you
1: go. <laughs> uh, but I also kind of tip some of the hows and whys of the how these things came about, how they fit in structure-wise. I do historical and personal anecdotes about uh, life in the sideshow, because it was the carnival was really the the original counterculture the carnival and the circus world with these nomadic bands of, of, of showmen and, and their workers and everything traveling around from town to town bringing a little bit of joy and a taste of the exotic and the unusual to kind of dreary communities, uh, agricultural, rural areas that life was just hard, hard, scrapple life. You get up early, you work your tail off, you have supper and you go to bed early and you get up and you do it all over again the next day. And once a year... The circus or the carnival would come to town and there would be, as part of it, a sideshow. And you would get a glimpse of unusual people doing remarkable things again. And uh, it was beyond your your what you had experienced in your everyday life. And it was exciting. It's very much the forerunner, uh, the great grandparent of the reality TV shows mm-hmm. that we've got uh, on today. Uh, and all the Discovery Channel, the, the, the Travel Channel, the History Channel, uh, the Learning Channel, all these things will basically have their roots in the sideshow because it was bringing the wild man of Borneo to uh, Nebraska, you know? Right, so, right. And uh, showing you these strange skills that and things like sword swallowing and laying on a bed of nails, which go back to the, the fakirs of India. So... That's the thing that has appealed to me is just why this has been popular through the years.
0: And why has it been popular or why is it popular now, I should say, because it is popular. People are oh, yeah. just as fascinated with yeah. this as they always were.
1: Well, I think people have always been fascinated with the unusual and things that are beyond their, their everyday life. Uh, it goes back to ancient times. Shakespeare wrote in The Tempest, when they will not lay out a doit for a lame beggar. A doit being a very cheap coin, like a penny. When they not lay out a doit to relieve a lame beggar, they will lay out ten to see a dead Indian. Mm. So it just goes to show that people were exhibiting oddities even then <laughs> and making making money off of it. Right. So I just think people have always been fascinated by the unusual, and especially the unusual that, that, uh, that involve other people. Mm. So... And in the show Carnival Knowledge, though, you've just heard me say a few things like sword swallowing, fire eating, hammering a nail in the nose. On paper, it seems like one thing. And let's be honest about this. The idea of a guy hammering a nail into his nose seems like the most unappetizing, most unappealing thing ever. uh, And positively shocking and disturbing. Well, yeah, it is. (laughs) I was going to say and. But... (laughs) The th- uh, the thing that I like to do is add in a whole nother element to it, mm. so that at the end of the act, if people aren't laughing and applauding and cheering after experiencing this, and in, in essence, applause is an audience saying thank you to the performer for the experience. If I don't get that, then there's no good reason to to be hammering a nail into your nose.
0: Well, it's it's something I'm so impressed with, seeing you perform, because... You do a fabulous mix. You do make it work. You take people to a certain place. Mm -hmm. And just when you think it's too much, you do this wonderful Mm -hmm. humor that also makes you happy that you've experienced maybe this disturbing thing. Because you've gone further than you think you could go. You've also discovered something that you would have thought is not possible. Exactly.
1: That's very important.
0: And I think that's wonderful. And I think... For me, that great music does that too because people are always telling me specifically about jazz. If they think they don't like it, they'll say, Well, I guess I don't understand it. So, the best jazz for me in terms of presentation are Mm -hmm. people that do what you do, in that they say, Okay, here's this, and they bring the people in, and then they say, Okay, maybe this is a little more difficult. but if you stay with me, I'll help you appreciate it. And that's what you do. And, it's, and at the end, you really feel expanded, mm-hmm. which is wonderful. And I well, feel that with your performances. Well, thank you.
1: I, I try to do that. Uh, I, I do a little speech at the end of the show saying that if you've been amazed by any of the things you've seen on our stage here, um, then our job is done and yours is just beginning. Mm. Because when you're amazed and you see something you don't understand, like a guy hammering a nail into his nose and you wonder, where the heck does that nail go that means you're thinking and there's too much fear in our world not enough rational thought Mm. and if i can start the thought process moving along in people then i think that's a very powerful thing Mm. and that's really what it's all about kind of instilling a profound sense of amazement and just expanding people's world a little bit with jazz i think there's a similar kind of thing going in that the, the forms of jazz I like, jazz that, that is challenging but it's still accessible. Mm-hmm. So much of post-swing jazz uh, has been an elitist form. And there seems like you, you have to have membership mm-hmm. before you really can get it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's crap. And the critics and the writers and the the scholars and everything thumbing their nose at earlier forms of jazz uh, is just wrong. Mm -hmm. I've always felt that, you know, the old phrase that those who can do, those who can't teach, and those that can't, who wish to feel superior to it, write about it.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's harsh. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, it
1: happens happens in the sideshow quite a bit, too.
0: Well, it happens everywhere. It happens everywhere. You have these
1: these people that are writing books, and they have no idea what made this... Uh, an art form made this entertaining. Uh, And and we
0: are entertaining. That's what I always feel is that a lot of performers, and specifically in jazz, and I hate to say it, forget that we're performing and we're entertaining. And it doesn't mean you have to come out in a funny hat and a costume, but you have to keep track of your audience. Just like a great conversation, you need to listen to the other person on the other side. It's very
1: important. And if you are going to come out with a, a a funny hat and a costume, you better know what you're doing. Exactly. Cuz if you're going to do any kind of thing that, that that is accessible, you can't play down, you can't and that's the, another thing that happens quite often when people are playing uh, earlier forms of jazz, they have a tendency to play down to it. They think they understand it, they think they're superior to it. And I would rather hear an amateur musician that truly loves and has studied and soaked up every lick of the earliest, uh, you know, pioneers of jazz, playing it. Than someone who is a great studio musician and uh, who is going to do his his sort of you know his version of this and plays at it but doesn't really play it. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's 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 what's drawn me to your music. The thing I like is that you're taking this older form mm. and i like the term i don't think there's any anything wrong with with the term archaic i love the term archaic <laughs> uh,
0: you're making me feel like an old man i know i know <laughs>
1: but uh. what you've done is you, you've taken this form and said okay this is what i'm going to use this is going to be my medium for expression mm. And it's what all the old guys did. Mm-hmm. It just so happens that it happened to be the newest music when they were coming along. Right. With you, you've just taken this, this form that has, uh, it has its roots many, many years before. And the thing about it is there are a number of people out there that are the, the musical impressionists, that they can sit down and play every friggin' lick and, and thing that Fat Swaller ever did. And you go, okay, that's nice. Now, who the hell are you? Mm-hmm. because that's all an affectation mm-hmm. what you've done is you've taken this form and said okay what do I want to put into it what do I want to get out of it and I think that's, the, that's really interesting about traditional jazz mm-hmm. is that you can get out of it and put yourself into it at the same time
0: My version of the Fats Waller tune, Fractious Fingering. Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is produced in association with Steinway and Sons. Thanks also to Carol Phillips, Steve Plotnicki, and Jamie Pierce. For discography of the music played on our show and a schedule of upcoming programs, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can email us at info at jazzinspired.com i'm judy carmichael and this is jazz inspired my guest magician todd robbins talked about his love for cliff jackson
1: he used to uh, play at the cafe society downtown and was this wonderful player that um was almost classical in his approach, not so much like Willie the Lion Smith and, and actual classical uh, licks thrown in to his playing. But it was all variations upon a theme. As he played, he would uh, start off a tune and play it rather simply, and yet had this real wonderful uh, his harmonic sense and and the voicing and everything was very full, even though he could be playing very very simple uh, single lines and single notes and then it just gets more and more complex and it builds and by the end of it it is one of the most exciting things you've ever heard as he's batting these rhythms around between his two hands it seems like they're completely in in contradiction to each other Mm -hmm. and yet it all fits together and by the end of it it is just such a satisfying experience
0: I are both fans of that in-between time that no one seems to talk about, of not really ragtime, not really stride, but right smack Mm. in the middle. And there's some wonderful people that did great things, which I consider jazz, but it is really that transition there between those two forms.
1: What you have to remember, again, as we were talking about the the piano roll uh people like Pete Wendling and stuff is that recording really didn't come into its own until the 1920s uh i mean there were recordings many many years before that but as a form it had such limitations that uh a lot of solo piano players didn't uh uh record because the piano itself didn't record that well and there were some really interesting people doing things out there not only solo pianists but also bands and there is this it's a primordial soup of uh, of sort of post-ragtime pre-jazz if you have to define it now the irony of it is uh, what we consider traditional jazz, New Orleans jazz the guys considered ragtime in New Orleans and it wasn't until a year or two after the original Dixieland Jazz Band came along uh, which was a group of Uh, white musicians from New Orleans that came to Chicago and set the town on fire Mm. then came to New York and did the exact same thing and made the first jazz recordings and many believe though there's some references to jazz being that that term being applied to music earlier than than the original Dixonite Jazz Band um, it for all intent and purpose was the first band that that really got the label jazz Um, and it's it's great because there's so much expression going on there that if you can sort of divorce yourself from what came later and listen to a little bit of what came earlier and what was being what was going on it was the punk rock of its day <laughs> A sense of the time, of, of of the the when it came about, and you understand from reading reports that when they played uh, Livery Stable Blues, which was the first jazz record, and it was later called Barnyard Blues because it was, uh, there was there a whole legality involved with it that they didn't copyright the thing, and some other musicians copyrighted the, the tune, uh, and it was just a, a mess. So, so they, see,
0: copyright was a problem uh, it, even all, then. Oh,
1: very much so. The, the original, um, the the first jazz recording had uh, two lawsuits on it. So there you go. <laughs> so we have a history it, of this. Exactly. We come
0: from a long line of litigation. Of,
1: of course, <laughs> from the very beginning. <laughs> Making and,
0: no money and being litigated. <laughs> it's
1: true, it's true. Uh, when, they, when they played that tune and they got to the break in the, about the third theme where the the rhythm drops out and the individual horns do barnyard animal imitations, which was just unheard of uh, when the rhythm came back in, people would cheer. They would, when the rhythm dropped out, they'd stop dancing. They'd listen to this thing, and it was just such a, a wonderful musical joke, and such so filled with joy that people would cheer and mm. go nuts. Mm. Just the same way that you see, um, and not exactly. I mean, the same spirit. It's not exactly. It wasn't a mosh pit going on with, with people <laughs> jumping off the stage. There and wasn't. Sort of, no, unfortunately, <laughs> it's a little more reserved than that. But at the same time, it had that same spirit mm. of these people doing these animal dances, and it was just uh, like the, the the bunny hop and the turkey trot and the fox trot to this music, and it was wild, and it was just filled with life. Mm. And I love that stuff. Whereas most people. Uh the the jazz historians have kind of looked down and go, Oh, well that was nothing. No, that was something.
0: Well, I think it's a a reluctance now by some people to just admit how much fun this is. Yeah. They're all too cool. Which is sad. It's very sad. Because the the joy should come back. And certainly with your shows, again, that's what I always feel, is that sense of joy. And I'm curious, the music that you use in Carnival Knowledge. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that.
1: Well, I'm using uh, mostly traditional uh, kind of circus uh, merry-go-round and things. And also, occasionally, I'll throw in a few things. I'm not uh, playing any music in this uh, show. I mean, myself. I'm not doing anything on on the keyboard. You're too busy
0: eating fire. It's true.
1: (laughs) But I like uh, using some sort of uh, uh, tunes that have been well associated there's a a bit that I do in the um, show where it's it's slightly frenetic and I use uh, the saber dance a kachaturian saber dance which um, has been used by every plate spitting act uh, every juggling act uh, in the circus you know for almost a 100 years. And as soon as you hear it, it just kind of evokes that. It throws back memories of the Ed Sullivan show over the people spinning plates and running back and forth and trying to keep mm. them from, from wobbling and breaking, uh, you know, falling off the, the sticks and things like that. So I use that. I also use, uh, there's a tune called Over the Waves, which uh, we, we set up this one kind of thing. And it just, as soon as you hear it, it just says to you, this is circus, this is carnival. Mm-hmm. And there's certain things like that that are the quintessential Music and so I've really thrown that in and use a few things here and there that uh, also uh, e- evoke a certain time and place.
0: Mm-hmm. People are just as fascinated with all of this, but are there as many people that are performing this kind of thing? I would think not.
1: No, the there aren't that many people that are um, doing sideshow entertainment, uh, mainly because the natural habitat of the sideshow uh, has. Become, um, uh, it's become extinct, uh, literally uh, extinct on the uh, the carnival. Uh, just in the last couple of weeks, actually, mm. uh, the last real permanent performing uh, s- uh, carnival sideshow is run by a great old showman named Ward Hall. And Ward is, I'm very proud to say, a good friend. He's been in the business sixty years, and he just decided to call it a day. So they've taken the show, uh, they've finished their season, and he's got uh, all the stuff up for sale. I'm sure it's going to be snatched up uh, by the collectors and squirreled away in people's uh, uh, living rooms and uh, in uh, store rooms. And uh, that uh, that show's been taken off the road. Uh, it vanished from the circus. In the, the old days, uh, almost every traveling circus had a sideshow. And because of the, what happened is, People would spend the day. They would come out. They bring a picnic lunch. Uh, they'd come out sometimes early in the morning. And watch them put the tent up, and then sit around and, and you know play games, a little softball perhaps. Have a lunch, and then go see the show. And since they were there early to get a little extra money out of them, they would have the side show and maybe a menagerie also of the animals that are going to be used. And you pay a little extra, and you'd come in and you'd see the swordswaller and the fire eater and the more intimate acts that didn't really play that well in the large circus tents. And uh, this tradition was, became extinct uh, in 1995 when the Kelly Miller Circus uh, stopped carrying a sideshow. Mm. And there was a show two years ago, the L.A. Barnes Circus, that, that uh, tried to do an old fashioned form with a live circus band playing traditional circus music and a number of traditional takes on circus acts including uh, a guy who did a fighting lion act the old kind of Clyde Beatty with the whip and chair and the blank gun and the jodhpurs and the pith helmet kind of thing which a lot of people you know look upon as cruel and barbaric and yet what they don't realize is that the, the cats uh, if they wanted to kill them they would <laughs> uh, they, they, as they know. we found out unfortunately yeah, yeah, recently yeah exactly with uh, Siegfried and Roy but um, they're having fun they're, mm-hmm. they're playing and when it's done well, it's an exciting act that has the illusion of extreme danger. It is dangerous. There's no two ways about it. And every uh, animal trainer has gotten hurt sooner or later, mm. um, hopefully not severely. Uh, and yet this act was all about just just playing, just kind of roughhousing with with the the, uh, the lions. And it's not abusive to a lion. If you've ever been up close to a lion, you have to go some. To really abuse that animal, because <laughs> that is a big, tough mofo animal. Okay, and you that's know, one big cat. Yeah, that's one big cat, and you know, and and they don't take kindly to being abused. Uh, so they're they're gonna they're gonna talk back to you. They're gonna let you know that uh, if you're not treating them well.
0: Talk about something else. Uh, you've got me thinking of this with the circus and the lions about yeah. being with the clown care unit. I think that's just a lovely thing that a lot of people don't even know exists, and you were involved with that for years with the Big Apple Circus. Talk about that. The Big Apple
1: Circus started up something back in the uh, late 1980s in which they send entertainers into the pediatric wards of various hospitals. And it's called the Clown Care Unit. And it's uh, primarily uh, clowns, but also there's some other musicians and jugglers and magicians and things like that that uh, go in and present themselves as sort of the, the medical specialists in these fields. We uh, would wear lab coats that would have the Big Apple Circus logo on the, on the back.
0: <laughs> and we would
1: come in and be, uh, you know, I'd be the, um, uh, I'd have my MD, which is um, Master of Deception, <laughs> uh, and do card tricks and things like that. And the great thing about it is kids don't have uh, that much in the way of a reference uh, point for being ill. They want to feel good and they don't quite understand it when they get sick. Mm-hmm. And it's a very can be a very traumatic experience when you put a child in a hospital because they know their home, they know their environment. All of a sudden, you put them in this foreign environment where they're often in a room with one or two other strange people, they're at, the, at the most separated by a small curtain. Mm. And it's very cold and sterile uh, emotionally there and you have people coming in and out of the room all the time not asking for permission because it's just too much to do whether they're cleaning the room servicing things or giving medication whatever they don't have time to say "Can I come in they just kind of come barging and take care of it and go and there's a loss of control so we would always go to the door and say can we come in can we No. and introduce ourselves and give the child permission sometimes it was not appropriate to go in and we wouldn't Wouldn't force ourselves, because we'd know that we were there. We'd be there two to three days a week. So if a child saw us on a Tuesday and we were back on Thursday, if they were frightened by the whole thing and a little traumatized by the whole experience and was shutting off to everything, they the more they may think about the fact that there was this clown and there was this magician and there was this musician standing at the door, sometimes performing in the hallway there with a little distance, so it's safe. Uh, often when we'd go back the next day that we were there uh, the child would be talking had been talking about us since we had left
0: how nice and we
1: would be able to go in and play just give the children permission to be kids again
0: Mm, that's lovely yeah
1: and it's been a really rewarding experience it started off in one hospital Columbia Presbyterian Babies Hospital there and is now not only with the Big Apple Circus, but with several other troops around the world.
0: Mm. That's wonderful. <laughs> A 1926 recording of Rube Bloom playing his composition Spring Fever. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. My guest is magician and sideshow specialist Todd Robbins.
1: The great thing uh, about these forms of entertainment, and I don't, uh, I'm known as a sideshow guy, um, but at the same time, a lot of people also know me as a magician because we've, I'm one of the producers of a show called Monday Night Magic, which is New York's longest-running magic show. We're in our seventh year of doing every Monday night a different lineup of people at the Soho Playhouse, same place where I have my show Carnival Knowledge. And I just love all forms of popular entertainment. I've been very fortunate throughout my career to be able to wallow in the various uh, areas (laughs) of this. And uh, I love doing... Delving into it, uh, into the research, looking in the background, and a lot of this stuff, unfortunately, has been because it was popular entertainment. Uh, I, the the word is says it all in that it is like a bubble, and it is there for a moment, and then it pops, and it is gone, and and people's interests move on to other things, and because of that, many people have just forgotten, and. There's some great stuff out there. There's some wonderful, wonderful stuff out there. And some wonderful people uh, that in music especially will... I mean, I'm talking about all forms, like burlesque. So happy to see a lot of the striptease come back. Uh, And yet that's incomplete because they've never really embraced the old uh, burlesque comedy which was so much a part of it and that's really where burlesque came from the idea of burlesquing something just like ragtime came from ragging a tune burlesquing meant to take a subject Uh, in the early days they would take classical themes and classical works like Shakespeare and have it done by these scantily clad busty women playing all these roles And, and often there were jokes put in things like that and that's where burlesque came from and the humor side of it, it really has not been embraced. And I think it's kind of sad. And I love that because I've, I've known a, a couple of old burlesque comedians. And just listening to this stuff, the timing and everything is so so wonderful. It's very much like jazz in that you have to have a sense of timing. You have to have a sense of balance. You have to have a sense of of taste. Even though it might be a very a very broad thing that you're doing, you have to know what is appropriate. And there's so many people that had such a distinct style of doing things in uh, uh, not only in burlesque, but also in vaudeville. What, what a wonderful form that has been lost. And it's very sad when uh, I know a number of people on TV who go in to pitch uh, bringing back the, the variety show uh, to TV. And the execs say, oh, we've got a variety show. It's, a, it's the Tonight Show. You go, no, that is no. not it. That's not it. There's a few people, like Steve Harvey has a show called Big Time. Uh, currently on the air that features variety, but it's a little, they kind of go for some of the nut job kind of strange acts, which I say this, and yet I got a call, and they want me to be on it, so uh, <laughs> I may be on it before you know it. Uh, so bring I, that nail. Yeah, exactly. They bring the nail, bring the light bulb. But at the same time, uh, there's there was just such a great form of, of things, and it's amazing when you delve into this, what you find. One thing that I discovered, which just kind of blew my mind, was a guy named Gene Green who was a huge star in his day, a vaudeville singer who didn't make it the way Jolson did. Ironically, he was known as Jolson of the West because he would work the Pantages circuit, the Orpheum circuit uh, out west, uh, and he had a, a distinct style of doing kind of novelty songs. And when that's the other thing about the musical compositions. Nowadays, you listen to everything in popular music and it's all about love, which is fine, it, whether it be falling in love or the loss of love, but that's all there is to it. And it's like do you want the beef? Do you want the chicken? That's all we got. <laughs> Whereas the early days, they would write, you know, jungle songs, right? Uh, you know, Abba Dabba Honeymoon, and like Pete Wendling wrote a tune called "All the Quakers Are Shoulder Shakers" now, which about the <laughs> jazz has been, has come to the Quaker communities, and they're uh... all dancing the jazz dances, and uh, he wrote a, a tune called Yakahula Hickey Dula which was written during the, the Hawaiian song craze of the, the <laughs> teens. And these are just fun tunes. They were just great. Yeah. I mean, of course, we know about all this, this, the tunes about the South that Al Jolson made famous, mm-hmm. Rockin' By My Baby with a Dixie Melody, mm-hmm. and among others. And there were all these strange things. And Gene Green had a tune that was, say, one of his signature things called King of the Buggaloos. And the great thing about it, he first recorded it in 1912, and he recorded it a couple other times. And there's a recording in 1918, I believe it is, where the wild thing about it is he sings this weird song about getting a a telegram and going back to the jungle and finding he's the king of the bugaloos, which is this, (laughs) you can't quite tell if it's a tribe or if it's this animal community or what the deal is. It's a bizarre thing. And after singing a chorus of the thing, he then starts doing these kind of novelty vocal things that were, were popular. And there's this this weird kind of uh, singing with a gun, kind of almost like a hiccup sound thrown mm-hmm. in. And then for about eight bars, he scat sings. Wow.
0: Now Everyone says,
1: heebie-jeebies, that's the first recording. Louis Armstrong invented scat singing, or if he didn't invent it, he introduced it on the record. No. Gene he, Green. Gene Green uh, on King of the Buglos," You hear it, and it's, it's scat singing. Simple as that.
0: That's so terrific. And then
1: he goes off in the kind of nonsense lyrics and things like that, but it's right there and you you can't deny it. And those kind of discoveries are so exciting. You go, see, dude, our great grandparents are a lot hipper than we give them credit for, you know? <laughs> and just
0: embraced joy, which yeah. as you're saying this, I'm just grinning ear to ear because you're reminding me of some of the early tunes that I heard that you introduced me mm-hmm. to or our mutual friend John Reynolds mm-hmm. or any of the people that really knew more about this music than I did when I was starting out mm-hmm. playing ragtime. And I was hooked on it because of the joy, certainly with yeah. Fats Waller. There's a guy that you know is having a grand time and yes. it just oozes out with everything he does.
1: I'm the sheep of piracy. Your chance, I'll creep, creep, creepy, creep, 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 the stars that shine above Will light our way to love.
0: You rule this land with me. I'm the shook to shake the sheep from every
1: sound what he's doing mm-hmm. it was such you could strip everything away and just listen to the music which he did a lot of solos and it is just such incredible music
0: but the music uh, itself is joyous yeah. that's what well, i'm very, saying yeah. even if you're not hearing fat sing sure. and there does seem to be an inhibition towards that now that i think you're talking about is missing whether it's Whether it's music, performance, whatever it is.
1: Well, I I think the problem is joy has been discounted in uh, popular entertainment and also in, especially in art, because if it's joyous, we can't be taken seriously then. Well, what's interesting is
0: it is wrong. And I think that a lot of what passes for that now is not joy, it's a certain kind of excitement, certainly. A frenetic energy. Exactly. But. I don't know that that joy, which has to come from a deeper place and something more substantive, Mm -hmm. with a fat swaller that we're talking as a good example, where the music is so strong, but the feeling is in every single note, not Mm -hmm. just somebody that has something that gives the illusion of that. Again, we're talking about illusion, which Mm -hmm. is your subject, which which is fascinating.
1: There's nothing... It's not easy to to put joy in the music, and do it without becoming hokey and pandering uh, to uh, to the public.
0: It has and to come from a deeper place. Yeah,
1: and there, you can't be. I mean, you can be intelligent about it, but you can't be cynical and be joyous at the same time. Mm. And that's that's the tough thing about it. Uh, you can do things tongue in cheek and still be joyous. Mm-hmm. Um, but the you know the difference is. If you think about Johnny Carson versus David Letterman, David Letterman is a sarcastic man. Mm -hmm. Oh, we're having fun now, aren't we? Mm -hmm. Whereas Johnny Carson would stand up there and when he was bombing, you know, he would say, well, we're we're having fun, aren't we? Mm -hmm. And it was just laughing at himself as opposed to we're doing nothing here and uh, and I'm going to distance myself from it so that I don't have to take responsibility.
0: You knew he what... was a fan. Yeah, when he had people yeah. on, he was a fan, as was Steve Allen. Yes. Some of those, those earlier guys were... And Jack were,
1: Parr also was just yeah. amazing. We're
0: making ourselves sound 100 years old, Todd. Folks, we're know, not really
1: 100. You know, when I was young, I, you kids nowadays have no understanding of what came. You don't know what the 1970s were all about. Let me tell you, sit down here.
0: Well, Todd Robbins, there is no illusion about what joy you bring. Thank you. Absolutely, with your shows, with your music, with being here today. This has been great fun. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. I I appreciate this because most people consider what I do a pathetic plea for attention, but but it gets it. That's the thing. It gets it, so therefore. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Judy.
0: You've been listening to magician and sideshow specialist Todd Robbins. I hope you'll join me here next time when I talk with another creative person about how jazz has inspired their life and work. I'm Judy Carmichael, the host and producer of Jazz Inspired. My production engineer is Mark Travis. The opening music is my version of Fats Waller's African Ripples from the CD Old Friends. The closing theme is Old Fashioned Love from the CD Trio. I'm on piano with Mike Hashem on sax and Chris Flory on guitar. Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is produced in association with Steinway & Sons. Thanks also to Carol Phillips, Steve Potnicki, and Jamie Pierce. Find out more about our program on our website, jazzinspired.com.